Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Thank you for joining me on episode now number 22 of Icons of DC Area Real Estate. I wanted to mention that uh, you can subscribe to the podcast at uh, coenterprises.com forward slash subscribe, which will give you access to every episode as as it's released. And before I link it up on LinkedIn, as I normally do each time it's released. I'm attempting to try to keep it to about every two weeks or so in in each episode. And I encourage you to to provide comments on any medium that you're listening to, either on my website or on Apple, iTunes, or Stitcher. Make comments and also refer to other friends who might be interested in listening. So I appreciate that. So for my guest today, we are doing a live interview with a live audience from George Washington University, hosted by Rob Valero, the leader of that group, with Sharon Oliver, who is the principal of Meany & Oliver, a boutique brokerage firm here in Washington, D.C. Sharon talks about her 40-plus year career in the business and some of the issues she's gone through being a woman in the business for that many years early on when we, she and I both started in the business throughout that time. There were very few ladies in the, uh, particularly in the office leasing sector, and also even in the institutional investing sector of the business. So she started in the, with equitable life and institutional investing, and then she more, more moved into the brokerage side in office leasing with uh, two brokerage firms, including Grubb and Ellis, and uh, three actually, Beretta, Grubb and Ellis Rubloff, and then she moved into being the head of leasing for the JBG companies for many, many years, doing some of the largest transactions in the, in the area, and then decided after a period of time that she wanted to get into brokerage again, which was she really loved, and started her own firm with Phil Meany. And so they've been operating as a boutique brokerage firm for several years now and doing very well serving her clients of many years. So without further ado, here is my interview with Sharon Oliver. Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome. My name is Robert Valero. I'm the executive director for George Washington University's Center for Real Estate and Urban Analysis. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to this session, uh, which is part of the continuing podcast series that is run by our host today, John Coe, that is entitled The Icons of DC Area Real Estate. And we're very proud that today's guest is a GW MBA alumnus and also the advisory board chair of our Center for Real Estate Analysis, Sharon Oliver. So we're really happy to have Sharon spending some time to talk about her her life, her career, her expertise, and her thoughts about what's happening in this crazy industry during this enormously crazy time. 
Just a couple of housekeeping uh, issues. If you're if you're not speaking, please mute your mics and also disable your uh, your video. Uh, and we're also going to use the chat room. Uh, if you have a question, if you can just type in the ch uh, type in your question in the chat room, and we can we'll monitor the chat room and go from there. So, without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to John. Thank you and welcome. Thank you, Rob. Really appreciate uh, the opportunity to speak to your student base at GW and also to other listeners that are participating via the uh, LinkedIn invitation that I made. And welcome, Sharon, to the to Icons of DCRA Real Estate podcast. I really appreciate your willingness to uh, to participate in uh, in this uh, event, and I appreciate it. And so uh, I thought we'd just uh, kick off the conversation uh, and have you tell us a little bit about you, your current situation at uh, Meany and Oliver, your firm, what you do on a day-to-day -day basis, and uh, uh, how your firm is uh, doing in this uh, situation right now that we're in, in the pandemic. Thanks, John. I'm happy to be here this morning. Um, it's always interesting to sit down and talk about the real estate industry and the changes and what's going on. We founded Meany and Oliver about 16 years ago, and we focus primarily on office leasing and sales. Um, we do some consulting, some investment with our clients, but that's really our focus. And obviously, it's it's a changing it's a changing playbook every day. You know, we do. It's never boring. Our relationships are what we've built our business around, and we really set up our business to be able to be a small boutique firm that really focuses on the needs of our clients and we deliver what they need. We And we only have people that really have a lot of experience that deliver that. So we've been with the national firms. We've done a lot of different things. Um, we don't have juniors. We just have us. And that's who you get when you're our client. And we pride ourselves on that. And we have a wide variety of clients. We work both the landlord and the tenant side. We work on um, owner-occupied buildings. We work on tenant buildings, we sell buildings, and we lease buildings all in the office arena. So it's a, it's a pretty broad array of what we do in our work every day. So it's just you and Phil Meany? Um, no, we have five people. So okay. Marty Alquist is with us, Lou Flaschenberg, Martin Griffin. Um, Martin, Phil, and I are the partners that are there. Great. Excellent. So you have a, a multivariate career that we'll, I'd love to talk much more about a little later on. But uh, before I get into your career arc, I thought I'd get back to the origin story a little bit, find out you know, where you grew up and what influences you had as a child, your parents, et cetera, and your schooling. So go right ahead. Tell us a little bit about where you, where you grew up and uh, uh, so, what you learned I'm, when you were growing up. So I'm a local. Okay, I'm, I'm one of the few that, you know, when I say I'm from here, I'm really, I'm from here. I grew up here. Um, I'm a fourth generation Washingtonian. So I have a lot of history in this city. And, uh, you know, the real estate business um, is something that is pretty local. So it, it, you know, it's worked to my advantage to be that. So as a child, uh, you know, I had the typical 1960s childhood. It was great. Lived in Bethesda, moved to Rockville. I went to Woodward High School. Some of my compatriots in the business went to Woodward with me. So I've known them a long time. And we're all, we're all friends, you know, even though we're competitors, we're friends. And so that's, you know, been a fun part of the business for me. But as a kid, so my grandfather owned H.G. Smithy Company. It was a real estate and oh. investment firm. 
um, sure. did management and leasing. And my father worked there and my uncle worked there. So I grew up in the real estate business, although, you know, I was a girl and they didn't think that I needed to know much about the real estate business. When they had conversations at my house, it was sort of like, you can go outside and play while we talk about this deal that seemed pretty special to me, but I had no idea what they were talking about, but I knew I wasn't allowed to know about it. So now I'm on the inside. Now I talk about deals. So, it, you know, it was always intriguing to me what they, what they did. I never thought I'd go into that business because, you know, it just wasn't something that was even on the table for the most part. Although I will say for my college application, I had to write an essay about someone that I really respected and admired and wanted to be like. And at 17, the essay I wrote was about my grandfather who owned a brokerage firm who did exactly what I do today. So when I look back on that, I kind of look at that and say, maybe the universe has your back. I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like things happen that you think about and they evolve and you become that. So maybe be careful what your thoughts are. But, um, so that, you know, that was, that was my growing up part. Um, you know, I played sports. I learned a lot about being a team member. Um, when I went to college, I played hockey, field hockey and lacrosse. And so, you know, I, I was very comfortable in that arena of being on a team of people and going out into the world and contributing whatever I could to that team. So I went to Goucher College. And at that point, Goucher was um, a women's college. Mm -hmm. It's not why I went there. Um, We won't even get into why I went there, but it played to my advantage because what I walked away from Goucher learning was that you could do anything you wanted to do. And so I graduated in the late 70s. It was just the beginning of when women could have a career. It Mm -hmm. wasn't the norm. But most of my friends from Goucher went on to have careers. And, you know, it just left that door open and it left you feeling like it was possible. So you went to a public high school at Woodward and then went to a private women's college. It's an interesting interesting evolution. I, I got to Goucher and wondered who these people were. <laughs> so, Those you know, I had to wear the right sweater and the right clothes and have the right shoes and everything <laughs> because I, you know, in public high school, it's different. You can do whatever. And I thought, where did all these people come from? They've been so sheltered, but, you know, it all worked out. So I became one of them. They became one of me. I don't know. We all mixed together. And, you know, and I, I took away a lot. It was eye opening starting at Goucher, though. So your grandfather founded H.T. Smithy. That's very interesting. That's an interesting history. So did he have personal influence on you and your career choices, thinking? You know, so, so I was very close to my grandparents. Um, they had a lot of impact just on how I looked at life, okay? And they thought the, the simplest things that you did were the greatest things in the world. I mean, I had a job where I had to key punch in stuff back in the day before computers, my grandmother thought that was the most amazing thing ever. I look back on that and think that was just typing basically in the summer job. So they were, they were very, very supportive. My grandfather helped me get a job at what was then as an NSNT bank, National Savings and Trust. I worked in the mortgage loan department during one of the summers. It gave me exposure to the real estate business in a different way that I hadn't had. So I would say he opened doors for me, but he never pushed me to be something. So. It was an interesting relationship. They were always part of my life, though, and, and I was very close to them. 
So that, you know, that led to when I graduated from college, I had a degree in economics and thought, okay, and I graduated in December and I wanted to stay till June because all my friends were graduating in June. By then I had decided I had gone way too fast through this process. I really needed to slow down. So my parents said, that's great, but you need to get a job. We're not paying for you to just sit around like, you know, with your friends in an apartment. So I went and got a job and my job was at Charles H. Steffi, which was a mortgage banking company in Baltimore. And I worked in their mortgage servicing department as my very first job right out of school. You know, I was very comfortable in the real estate world. When we did my lease, as a, we moved off campus as a senior in college. I had two friends that I moved with and they all went, you know, this is great. You can negotiate the lease. You can do all this stuff and, you know, we'll pay you the rent. You can collect it and you can make sure that it all gets taken care of. So even at 21, when I was like a senior in college, I should have seen the writing on the wall because that was my job, even among my friends. So That's great. That's great. So you, uh, you started working in Baltimore. Was that in the mortgage business? Is that what yes. Yeah. So I stayed in Baltimore. So my senior year, I moved, Gatcher's in the suburbs, it's in Towson. I moved off right. campus of uh, Hopkins. I lived in what was called the student ghetto at that point. It, it was a great place to be. I mean, it was all college, you know, junior, seniors, whatever, right off campus. And Hopkins and Goucher were, uh, you know, brother and sister school at that point. So I had a lot of friends there. So for me, I just wanted to stay with them until graduation. And so I got a job in Baltimore. Baltimore is a very, you know, a very small city. And it's also a city where it's either you're one of, you grew up in Baltimore or you didn't. You know, they ask, when you go for a job, they ask you where you went to high school, you know, who, you know, who your friends were. It's not about like where you went to college and what you graduated with. And I experienced that, you know, I, I ran an office in the suburban Maryland office here for Grubb and Ellis, and we did work in Baltimore. So I know, you know, it's, it's just, it's very local there. So I stayed there, but I only stayed through graduation. And then I moved back to DC. So, your parents wanted you home. <laughs> nah, I think I wanted to come home. I, I was kind of, I, I didn't ever really go home if you want to know the truth. I stayed there for about a month and I moved out. <laughs> so, uh, and, and I moved, so I grew up in Maryland and I moved to Virginia right out of school. So let's just say they thought I might've moved to Siberia at that point. You know, Virginia and Maryland were very disconnected. So I don't think, I don't think my parents ever came to visit me while I lived in that apartment with my roommates. <laughs> so. It so was, you came back to D.C. Well. and then did you go, you know, did you start at, at Equitable at that time? Tell us how you got that job, that opportunity. So, so no, I, so I had an undergraduate degree in economics. I thought I should be an economic researcher because that's what they taught you to be or go to grad school. So I took this research job. I couldn't stand it. It was no, it, all I did every day was go and look at the stock market, see what the stock market had done, uh, mm-hmm. you know, notch where the, where the numbers were. And then I went home. I had friends there, but it was the most boring job I ever had. So I was really tired of that job. My boss for a variety, he went on a a trip to a convention and I went and looked for a job. So Equitable offered me a job that was either in the insurance side or the real estate side. I could pick which one I wanted. And I went, well, I guess I'll pick real estate. And so that was the beginning of my career. It was pretty much that simple. I went to work in the regional office here. There are two offices for Equitable. They were one of the largest owners in the country at that point in time. You know, you know the Pru side, I know the equitable side. Those two firms owned a huge percentage of, of the real estate. And 
you know, I remember calling my dad and saying, so what do you think about going to work for Equitable? And he's like, if you can get a job for Equitable, go work for Equitable. That's, you know, that's a great opportunity. And it ended up being that. I was there for five years. It was a great place to learn almost every aspect of the business. I mean, they, they let me do, at, at 23, I did amazing things when I was there. I look back and think, how did they let me do these things? You know, a, a hotel went into foreclosure. I would go and say, okay, here's what we need to do to get it out of foreclosure. Here's how we're going to sell it. Here's how we're going to package it. And then I could take it to market, you know, we're teamed with somebody in the office. How did you learn these things, Sharon? I mean, it was, it, was it an on-the-job training or did you have a formal training program at Equitable or what, what was this, it? This was on-the-job training. So here's the deal. When I was there, I'd been there about a year and I thought, okay, I got to move up out of this position that I'm in because I was the bottom of the bottom, Okay. So I went to them and I said, okay, can I join the training program? And which I knew they had. And so they, you know, ran that up the flagpole and they came back to me and they said, we're really sorry. You cannot join the the training program. And I was like, okay, why not? And they went, well, we have too many women in that training program. And I said, okay, how many women are there? And they said one, and one was, was enough for for the whole country to have in the training program, apparently. So, you know, I stepped back and thought, that seems really crazy. You know, I mean, I get that I'm in, the, in a, you know, a man's world in that business at that time. And, but I had to do something. So they finally, came, I went to them and I said, okay, I'm going to think about what I'm going to do. And then one of the senior people who I was close with, who was the number two guy in the office came to me and said, I have an idea. And I went, okay. So he said, we'll pay for you to go get your MBA. If you want to go do that, why don't you stay here? You'll get your MBA. You can continue working and we'll go from there. And I went, great. That sounds fine. I got to say that that played out probably better than a training program ever would have played for me. And so I was there. I was at Equitable for five years. By the time I left, um, I was running their leasing for them in the Washington, D.C. area. And, you know, they, they just taught me so much. Literally, I had one guy that I worked for, a guy named Alan Scott, who once a week would say to me, okay, here's what we're going to do today. We're going to sit down for an hour and we're going to learn how to measure a plan. We're going to learn how to negotiate a lease. We're going to learn whatever, okay? He set up lunches with me for people that he knew in the business. We'd go out to lunch, you know, once every other week with some person who he thought was, you know, an important person in the business, somebody who had impact that I had to know. He told me one time, uh, we did work with IBM and we did work a lot of work with GSA at that point in time. And he told me, if you keep these two clients for your whole career, you'll be fine. You just figure out how to hang on to your clients. Don't worry about like getting a new one every day. Worry about how to deal with the ones you have and making it work and keep those relationships. So he taught me the importance of, of a relationship. And, you know, a lot of my clients that I have today, I've known those people since I was 25, I've known them, you know, almost 40 years. And I think it's true. You know, if you treat your clients well and you take care of your clients the right way, they will be your clients forever and you will never have a problem. You know, if you've got to start over again every day, it's a nightmare. You know, I mean, when we, you know, you and I were in business early, when we started in the business, they'd say, you know, this is great. Sit down, you figure out how to cold call Here's what we had black sky in this market, which was just a right. book that showed all the opportunities. Right? Pre-co-star. <laughs> Way pre-co-star. Nothing like, <laughs> there were no computers, no electronics. Right. So you call your friends and say, do you have space? You know, whatever you were looking for. 
or you'd look in black, black sky to start and they'd have pictures yep. of the buildings and they'd say how much space it might've had when they published the book, but you had to call to find out how much they had today. Right. I mean, it was very old school, you know, pretty basic. So when you were at equitable, were you involved only in the, on the asset side of the business or were you doing deals too? Were you, do, were you buying properties and, and investing as well? So I was involved in both sides for them, you know, okay. call it, so Oliver, the Oliver Carr Company was the biggest partner that right. Equitable had. I mean, they kind of went hand in hand. The two of those firms did a lot of work together. So when I, we did International Square when I was there, which is still a prominent building downtown. We did Metropolitan Square, which is the building that has Old Evan in it. And, you know, I helped close those deals. I wasn't the person that was negotiating. You know, there were much more senior people negotiating those deals at that point. But I was involved in those deals and, you know, knew the players. And, and was this the ground-up development, ground development of these projects? Is that what they were? Yeah, ground-up development. Now, so Equitable didn't do ground-up development. Carr did the ground-up development. Equitable would provide the money. So it was right. that kind of partnership. But then my real job became at Equitable negotiating leases for all the properties that they have. So I was the frontline person for all the leasing and negotiated all the deals for those properties. Um, so you work with CARS leasing agents, I assume, or they're, they're <laughs> yeah, third so, parties. Yeah, so CAR pretty much did, if, we, if it was a ground-up development that CAR did, CAR was doing the leasing, Steve Raylauer, those guys were doing the leasing, and then I was doing the leasing on say, the rest of the stuff that Equitable didn't do with CAR, and there was a lot of that. Um, you know, we had a really large portfolio in Montgomery County out around Twinbrook. I basically made a career of that, that portfolio. I did all the leasing when I was at Equitable. We outsourced that because Equitable made a decision to not keep leasing in-house. So we outsourced it to Rubloff. I went to Rubloff, ran that portfolio. I went to Beretta. They came to me and said, we want to sell the portfolio. I sold the portfolio to JBG. Ultimately, years later, when I went to JBG, I did all the leasing at Twinbrook for JBG. So I spent, you know, I was like with four different firms on one huge project. You know, that project consists uh, today of over a million square feet. It was about 500,000 square feet at that point. When so, was it again, developed? You know, a good example of, you know, just mm-hmm. stick with what you know and keep going in the same vein and it'll all That's work. Interesting. That's interesting that you took a portfolio through four different employers. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, and four different, you know, four different versions of it, I would say, you know, it started as, you know, industrial kind of, you know, R&D industrial became uh-huh. office, sold the portfolio, JBG, you know, piece by piece has redeveloped it and is now right behind the Pike and Rose development that, you know, that's there on Rockville Pike. So. Interesting. So who was Equitable's partner when that was developed, those, those projects? So Equitable didn't do they really they just leased that and held it they didn't redevelop it and so, so that was an acquisition was, those were acquisitions at the time yeah so they so they Danek was the original developer okay Danek being local Washington firm they developed sure. it they sold it to Equitable okay mm-hmm. Equitable leased it so I would you know I was a leasing person and they really handled that as Got an it. asset of theirs and then they sold it to JBG and then JBG did all the redevelopment of the project. Fascinating. So your evolution into brokerage basically was natural by following your following your clients in essence. You know, exactly. moving to from as Equitable made a, a corporate decision to outsource leasing, 
it was natural for you just to leave and take it on. Is that, is that the transition, basically? Literally, I went, I went home on Friday. I worked for Equitable, and on Monday, I worked for Rubloff in the same office. So Interesting. did the same work, ran the same portfolio. It yeah. gave me a great base to work from. So why Rubloff? What happened at that time? Why did you hire them? So Rubloff um, was and based in Chicago. Explain who they are. Explain who they are. Yes. So, they, so they were the primo brokerage firm in Chicago. And they had reached out to different cities by that point in time and opened offices. I think that they were in maybe five or six offices by that point in time, Washington being one of them. I had done deals with the people that were here locally. At that point, Jeff Zell, Larry Wolf were the lead people. And so I knew them. And they came in, they had done um, a lot of large uh, institutional kinds of business. They were working with crew. They were working with other kinds of institutional investors. So they had a lot of experience in how to handle an institutional investor that some of the locals didn't have. So they were comfortable with Equitable and Equitable was comfortable that they understood their business. And they put a lot of uh, resources at the portfolio and they had a pretty deep uh, bench of experience in Montgomery County because that was really the focus for them at that point in time. They weren't doing a lot of downtown and Northern Virginia hadn't become a real place yet. So they weren't really focused there. So as a firm, they were focused in Montgomery County. Equitable's base was focused in Montgomery County that they were outsourcing. And so it was a good match at that point in time. So you stayed with, with uh, Rubloff for how long? So I was there for three years. I left there to be a partner at Beretta. And I went to, as firm Beretta started his firm, um, I joined them as a partner to run the Maryland business for them and was there for a while. So Explain Fern's background a little bit. For the so Fern so was with Smithy Brayton, okay, and made a decision that he wanted to go out on his own. His real background was downtown. So right. that was his focus. Um, when he left Smithy Brayton, he took a lot of the people that were at Smithy Brayton at that point in time. They were mostly, he didn't have any Maryland presence, okay? They were all downtown or Northern Virginia people. And so, you know, he reached out to me and said, you know, we really need to cover this part of the market. And at that point, we were doing primarily leasing. It, it, was, a, it was really a brokerage firm that was focused on office leasing, a little bit of retail, some management, but I would call it an office leasing brokerage firm at that point. It's interesting. It's ironic that uh, your grandfather founded uh, the firm that uh, that he left. <laughs> it all comes around. I don't know what to say. <laughs> so, it's funny how that comes around, doesn't it? I, I will say that there are a lot of people that I was at Beretta with that are very senior in the business now. Everybody um, has had a great career that came out of that. John Kaler was there with me. He was the most recent person who ran leasing at Boston Properties. Rob Capito was with me, very prominent. Uh, you know, Northern Virginia broker, Barbara McDuffie, who's now with Baker Tilly. There was a, a long list of people that, that really did very well coming out of that firm. You know, we were the beginning of what I would call sort of an entrepreneurial kind of brokerage spinoff from some of the larger firms. But as it happens, your next employer was one of the largest national firms, correct? <laughs> right. So... <laughs> <laughs> so, I, you know, this is, I guess this is the story of brokerage. In order to, you either stay at a brokerage firm for 40 years or you kind of move around and, and right. make it make sense, you know, over a right. period of time with several brokerage firms, right? Or whatever you want to do. 
So I, um, I left and went to Gravenalis, um, which Leggett McCall had just become Gravenalis at that point in time. So why did you do that? So I wanted to work at a place which had a lot of integrity, which I respected, which had the ability to use a national platform to develop the business. And I wanted to work with people that were my, I guess I'll call them my friends, okay, at that point in time. So Phil Meany had just started running that operation when I went there. He and I had um, done a lot of business together over the years, starting when, uh, when I was at Equitable. We did a series of deals. Uh, he represented EDS. I represented Equitable. And we probably did, I don't know, three, four, five, six deals, uh, kind of back to back to back. And so he was running the operation for Grub and Ellis at that point. So I joined them to uh, run the Maryland office for them. And we opened a Maryland office while I was there, did a significant amount of business. Um, I took IBM with me when I was there, did all of their business through the time that I was at Grub and Ellis. And, you know, it was a, they, they had built a real great reputation in Northern Virginia and downtown. It was an opportunity to go join them and build that reputation in Maryland. And while I was there, I did a lot of work with JVG. So, cause I know the next question is <laughs> why should we even go to JVG? <laughs> so, you know, JVG, when I went there had been my client for 25 years. I met Mike Wasserman when I was at Equitable. And Mike was my mentor for most of my career. There were times when you know, people would even call him and say, you know, should we give her the business or not give her the business? I remember pitching a learner project and there were a series of partners with them. Terry Aiken was one of them. And he actually went to Mike and said, you need to tell us the answer. And, you know, I had a great relationship with Mike and I was fortunate to get that business and learner became a client of mine at that point in time. So throughout, you know, all the way from when I'm 25 at Equitable to now I'm like, I don't know, 45, say. So I, I then go to, to, uh, to JBG as they regroup because they had sold to Trizacon. You know, they've become a really large right. company, sold their um, this is business early to 90s, Early 1990s, right? I'm talking like late 90s. Really? Oh, I went, uh, yeah, I okay. went there in 1999. I think they sold to Trizicon in 1998, maybe. When I went to JVG, there were fewer than 20 people. When I left JVG, right. there were probably three or 400 people. You know, it was that right. kind of growth curve. So, you know, I, I think everything I did just kind of built on each other. That's how I look at my career. It was a series of stepping stones. It was, you know, one firm, one relationship, build it to the next firm, the next relationships, and keep going. So it sounds like at each firm, you had one or two people that you kind of looked up to as idols or mentors or people that kind of guided you a little bit. Talk about mentorship. You, 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 you expressed your first mentor was the fellow at Equitable that kind of carried you through. Talk about that. And have you carried forward doing that yourself with other young brokers in the marketplace? Yes. So I think so. I feel strongly that to be really successful, everybody needs a mentor. You need to develop that relationship. And for any student listening, I mean, that's this is such a critical part of being able to be successful, like to have that person to be able to bounce ideas off of or to help you or to open doors or whatever um, that you need is really important. So, you know, until... Until I got, I mean, even when I was at Grubb and Allison, you know, so Phil and I are equals, okay? I mean, I wouldn't call Phil a mentor. Phil's a friend. But 
you know, until I got there, I had had a series of mentors that had, had really driven my career for me and helped me open doors that enabled me to do things or tell me if something's a bad idea. You know, I mean, that, you know, most sure. you know, mentor has to be honest. I mean, they have to say, this is going to work or this isn't going to work. So in return, I feel strongly about giving that back to people. Okay, and I've been in different organizations. I belong to a group right now of um, senior real estate women. And the main goal is to help women rise in the real estate business. I mean, it's still a business where you look at the percentage of women in the business. It's very small compared to the percentage of senior men. Um, And I have this conversation all the time with my husband. So he's a CPA. He was at KPMG forever. And he's like, I just don't get it. KPMG, they're like more than 50 percent women. And you keep talking about how there's only, I don't know, 10% women. And that's just the way it is. You know, I mean, I never worried about it. And I think you have to look at it that way. If you're going to make it as a woman in, in a business like that, you can't worry about whether, you know, you're male, female, whatever you are, you are. And, um, you know, I was just one of the guys for most of the time, truly. <laughs> you know, it was sort of like, you just were friends with them. You were either with them or you weren't. That's kind of how, how the beginning of, of brokerage was. And so by being friends with those people, you know, gave you the ability to survive in the business. You know, I I thought it was fun. I never worried about it. It was fun. It was fun being around everybody. It was fun, you know, doing deals. I never felt like it was a lot of work. It was fun. Brokerage can be a a very challenging profession, not only financially, because you have it's high risk, high reward opportunity, but there's a certain bravado in the business to some extent. And being a lady in the business had to at times be a little challenging. So go back to your beginning of the origin of your career back in the late 70s and the environment in a, in a negotiating session for a lease at that time or a, a sale a property and what the environment was like being the only woman in the room, usually, I imagine. And then how that evolved over time and how you felt differently about that setting in your negotiations and, and dealings. Well, after all, I was so young that, you know, it, it, I, I just couldn't even, I didn't spend any time thinking about it, except for when they told me I couldn't be in the training program. And I went, why not? You know, I, I look at life and go, why not? Okay, why can't I be something or why can't you right. be somewhere? You know, it, right. it's the opportunistic part of me it's the positive part of me that says you can do all this and it doesn't matter and I'll I'll say today so in the beginning I was the only woman in the room there are many times today I'm the only woman in the room still it it is amazing to me it's the unusual time where there are two or three women at the table today still so I I would say it hasn't changed a lot in my opinion I, I think there's a lot more younger women coming up behind me but you know at what I do there's just, you know, it's often just me at the table. I mean, I could, have, I could be in a room at a table and have 15 people at the table and I'll be the only woman. And it is what it is. But I, I don't, I never, you know, I don't come home and think about that. I, I really don't. It doesn't, it doesn't matter to me because I think you have to just be well prepared. You have to have done your homework. You have to know what you're doing and what you're negotiating. It's pretty simple when you break it down that way. The one thing about being a woman is they always remember who you are. They, you know, it's never, it's never a question. They always know your name. They remember that they met you. You know, if you're in a room of people, I've had people come up to me and and say hello that I might not know who they are. They always know 
who the person is that looks different than everybody. So that's, that's always a plus. I'm curious about your, you know, the times in, in sessions where men were dominating the, the conversation and you were maybe ignored potentially or looked around or people said, we don't need to pay any attention to her. I mean, did you kind of assert yourself sometimes or you had to do that once or twice in your career, I assume, didn't you? I'm never worried about it. I mean, I always say what I think at the table, okay, you know, or, or in the deal. You don't care. Um, I mean, I think male, female, whatever, you have to speak up and you have to be heard at the table. I mean, I've had people, I know Phil's on the, on the, on the call, so, you know, <laughs> there's a time where one client actually, you know, like, screamed at me across the table and went, like, you know, whatever. He just was unhappy that anything was being questioned that he would possibly think. And he wasn't a marketing person. He wasn't a leasing person. You know, he wasn't the person that could make the decision how to get something done. And, you know, sometimes you just have to take it. And you just say, okay, you know, I'm just going to, like, I'll deal with this a different way. Because you have to get people, you know, the, the point of a negotiation is to get people to agree, right? So you can't be so aggressive that everybody's upset with each other. You have to figure out how to bring the people together. So the art of finessing the deal, if you will, that, that yeah. back and forth conversation, you know, you have to be someone they trust. And so you have to earn their trust and respect and then move on. You can't just jam it down their throat. And those people come and go in our business all the time. They're not long-term people. So you have to be able to figure out how to, how to work it. And, you know, from day one of my career, I sat and watched people figure out how to work it. And, you know, that's what you do. I mean, I never, I never, ever took the position that I'm a woman and, you know, this is just the way it's going to be, you know, I mean, I think those women didn't survive the business. I mean, I've seen them and and I don't think men survive the business that are really tough either, you know, like that. So you can't be over-assertive. I think that's the answer. Agreed. Agreed. So you, uh, you were with JBG for quite some time, and you led them, their leasing efforts. Was that their entire portfolio or just in the, northern, in the suburban Maryland portfolio when you were there? No, I did their, their, I did their entire portfolio. So they had been my client for a long, long time before I went there. I was hired by Joe Gildenhorn to do a project. Yes. in Greenbelt for them that they were having problems with. And we ended up doing a 250000 square foot deal with Bendix, um, which was an amazing deal for, for Prince George's County and for Greenbelt. And um, I developed that relationship. I knew Mike already. You know, Joe hired me. Joe went to become the ambassador to Switzerland when I was there. The biggest mistake I ever made was not going to Switzerland to visit when Joe was there. <laughs> so I had a relationship with them. And... Um, Subsequently, did sold them the portfolio that that uh, Equitable had developed or had owned at Twinbrook, mm-hmm. and did that leasing for them uh, when I was at Grove and Ellis. I did leasing of some of their Shady Grove. As a matter of fact, right before when I was going to them, I was doing a project that they had at Shady Grove. I was doing a learner project on the other side of the road, and I went to them before I took the learner project, and I said, you know. There's not a lot happening with this project. I'm going to stay on your project, but I really would like to take the Learner project. And they went, okay, go take, you know, you can have both. That's fine. And Learner accepted that. 
And I don't know, maybe six months later, one of the, um, the partners came back to me and said, you know, we really think this would work better if you just came and joined us. And we've asked you before and we, you know, we'd really like that to be the way it goes. And, and it was a great opportunity because they had just restarted the firm. So I went there um, as a partner, was a principal in the firm and ran all their leasing and management for the five years that I was there. And I got to do an amazing uh, amount of work with them and some unbelievable deals. We did ICE headquarters on 12th Street downtown. We did Kirkpatrick and Lockhart at 16th and K. And what was funny about 16th and K, my very first job, that economic research job that I couldn't stand, was at the building that became 1601 K Street that JBG redeveloped. Oh. So I'm sitting there walking to this building when it was not redeveloped. That was my first job where I had this horrible boss that I couldn't stand. So it's great that they tore that building down and we have a new building there. <laughs> um, we did um, Arlington Gateway. We did a lot of projects in Northern Virginia. We did uh, Waterview. So I, you know, it was just a, it was a wonderful opportunity to really work the whole marketplace and, and really do some deals that were very meaningful changes for the neighborhoods that, that they went, that they were developed in. And when I left JBG, so I made a decision to leave JBG and join Phil and he had left Grubbinellis probably a year before. And it was an opportunity that I felt sort of was now or never. It was like, I, if we wanted to have our own firm and we wanted to go do something that was very entrepreneurial, focused on the type of work that we'd done for a long time, but in a different way, I felt like I had to do it then. I couldn't wait 10 years. I, I would have aged out of that whole opportunity in so many ways. And so, and Phil and I had been friends for a long, long time and had a lot of respect for each other and did our business the same way. So it was an opportunity to leave JBG where I was the head of leasing and management, but I wasn't a development person and I didn't really want to go into development. So I was not the main business that they had. Um, and I really wanted to focus on deals. You know, that's how I saw the rest of my career. And I remember saying to my Glosserman, I just want to go back and be in brokerage. And he's like, you really want to do that? And I was like, Yes, that's, that is my first love, my passion. I want to be on the front line on deals. And so I left and they gave me all their business when I left. So it was, a, it was an opportunity to, you know, to start a firm and have that cushion to be able to work with. So um, probably for the first three or four years that we had me and Oliver, we did all of JBG's business. And I just made a decision at some point that we also had to expand other things. We couldn't just be JBG. And today we still do some of JBG's business. So again, you know, another very long-term relationship that has lasted pretty much the lifetime of my career. It's interesting. You know, you started an institutional investing with, with Equitable, one of the largest investors in the country. And then you jumped into brokerage and were in there for quite some time and then joined the, one of the largest development firms in the Washington area. But, you know, it just isn't enough. I want to be a broker again. I want to go back. It's an interesting thought process. And I'm, I'm really wondering why, if you could dig a little deeper in that. And was it market conditions at the time? I mean, was JBG going through some issues uh, that might have caused that decision? I'm just, I'm just really curious. No, there were no issues at JBG, um, and I left there on great terms. Again, like I said, I did all their business when I left. Uh, You know, I just, being at a development firm and being the leasing person is different. You know, there were a lot of people doing development, and development was really the focus, okay? Mm -hmm. And 
although leasing is how you make your, how you create value in a building. Because you can build a building and if it's not leased, you have no value, right? right. So all your value is tied up in, in doing the deal. But the real focus was, was development. And not only that, I was working 24 hours a day. I mean, I would go all day long. I would do development meetings and you know, we'd talk about how to develop and what to do. And all night long, I'd go home and negotiate leases with Abe Greenstein, who was our, you know, our <laughs> attorney. and, you know, he'd be calling me at, you know, nine o'clock at 10 o'clock at night. And we do, you know, we'd sit down and, and negotiate a lease, you know, go over all the comments and everything. It was just a really, it, it was a, I had a great time when I was there. It was time to make a change. You know, I felt like, you know, for what I wanted in my life, for what I wanted to do in my career, okay. I wanted more flexibility. I wanted to be able to, to deal with the clients that, you know, in the way that I wanted to deal with them. I didn't want to try to sell something that, you know, just because we built it, whatever, it, you know, it was, a, it was a whole series of, of, of things I think that made, that got me to that point. I also have four children. And so I, you know, brokerage have been a great career to have a lot of flexibility. I didn't have any flexibility at JBG. So, you know, I, yeah. I really, there were things I needed personally and things I wanted professionally that made me make that decision to move on. And then the timing of Phil leaving Gravinellis and it being an opportunity that the two of us could join together and open a firm, you know, gave me an, it was an amazing opportunity to be able to go do that. And then Martin Griffin joined us about a year later. Martin went to work with me one year out of college. Okay. So, and he's been at a couple of firms since, but you know, so we have a history also of, I don't know, 30 years of working together. So, you know, at our firm, you know, Phil and I have known each other 40 years and Martin's been there 30 years. It's, it's a, you know, we have a, we trust each other, you know, we kind of like can finish each other's sentences. We know where the other one's going and we all have our own role within the firm. But, you know, that we never have to ever worry about is the job going to get done? How somebody treating a client you know, I'll tell you a lot of managing brokers is babysitting more than doing the deals. And, and, you know, we didn't want to do that. <laughs> so, you know, it was kind of like we wanted to be on the front line of the deals and get them done. So, and that's what we do today. Yeah. So you're a boutique firm and you decided to stay that way. You didn't want to become a, a mega firm like CBRE or JLL or, you know, the other ones to, you know, try right. and compete. And so... Talk about how that evolved a little bit and, you know, how did you fit the, the, the bandwidth of your firm into the competitive environment that the other firms have? And, you know, how did you build your business, uh, com, you know, in, comp, in a fairly competitive market to be successful? So we built our business off relationships. When we opened, we had several people come to us you know, main people that you would know, development people, and say to us, you know, you need to become 25 people, you need to become 30 people, you need to figure out how to do this. I'd seen that not work very well at Beretta. I, you know, Beretta, when I was at Beretta, the goal was to become the biggest that you could possibly be, and I saw it completely fall apart. I didn't want to be in that position where we had 25 or 30 people. And you know, as a broker, I feel very responsible for feeding all those people. You know, I don't think you could just throw them out to the wind and say, you're on your own. I think you have to make sure everybody gets paid and everybody makes enough and everybody's taken care of. And as long as you're contributing, you know, you should have enough money to live. 
Um, so I don't want, you know, Phil and I talked for a long time. We don't want to be in a position where we're trying to uh, just build a firm just to, to be big. I think that's worked way to our benefit at this point. I think you can't be a middle size firm today. You know, you can either be very large, you can be JLL, Cushman, CBRE, or you can be very small and do well. And it's really hard to be in that middle range. So at this moment, I'm really glad we don't have 25 or 30 people that we're trying to figure out how to do deals with. We've been up against the biggest. We have one um, more than our share of business. I couldn't be more grateful to how everything's worked out and how much our clients have believed in us. After very early in, in, in our start of meeting Oliver, we pitched Mount Vernon Place, which was a project that Quadrangle and Sandy Wilkes were doing. And we went up against, I think it was at that point, Cassidy and Pinkard, and then two of the large ones. I forget if it was JLL and CBRE, but something like that. Okay. And, you know, we went in and we just, we had a lot of experience in mixed use projects. Um, Phil had done Reston Town Center. I'd done other ones. And, you know, we just laid out how we saw everything unfolding and how we thought this project could work. And, you know, we walked away from there and thought we've done, you know, we've done what we can do and we'll see how the chips fall. We got hired and every single one of our competitors went to them and said, how could you do this? How could you hire them, you know, Sharon and Phil over all of us, you know, JLL, CBRE, whoever. And we've been on that project now for 15 years and have done, you know, we're getting ready to do, to put another piece of it out for sale. And you know, we've just, we, we just spend the time and take the time to really think through every single thing and how to make something work and how to be creative. And we walk in to a project and we're pitching it. We're not pitching like the national vision of whatever. We're pitching, you know, we're here, we're in this market. We have a lot of depth. You're going to see us every day. You're not going to see the junior person that we put on the team. You're going to see Phil and Sharon and Martin every single meeting, every single time. So, you know, we, we, have, we have brokers who are competitors who have come and said, you know, you have pulled more than your weight in the business. And we're proud of that and grateful for that and couldn't be happier um, for how that has all played out. Talk about the evolution of the brokerage business uh, since you started. And so thinking back to late 70s, uh, you know, <laughs> so, black, so late sky, yeah, black sky to today's technology situation. So the brokerage business was the wild, wild west <laughs> when we started. I mean, yeah, like I said to you before, we had Black Sky. We had a book. Some people had a phone book. You had the Washington Post classifieds that you might look at to see who was hiring. And it was a free-for-all. It was everybody on their own. It was, you know, just go out there, you know, try to get somebody to give you business and, and keep going. Talk about cold calling. How did you do that? I hated cold calling. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I never, I mean, cold calling is great, except for like, you know, it's so hard. You have, like to me, like you have a, if you might know somebody, you have maybe a 90% or an 80% chance. If you don't know the person at all, you got like a 2% chance of getting that business, right? So you got to cold call a ton of people to get business. I mean, I was never afraid to do that, but just, you know, it just didn't seem to have much merit to me. Like you really had to figure out another way. Maybe and I did early on. I just, you know, cold calling just never seemed to be that productive to me. And I'll, there's other people that say, at least you open doors. That's true. But a warm call always worked better than a cold call to me. 
So cold calling was simple. You looked in the phone book, you might pick an industry, you might decide you want to cold call IBM or you want to cold call EDS or you want to cold call whoever. And, you know, that's great, but they might already have a relationship with somebody. So then you had to figure out how to get around that. But, you know, there were a lot fewer brokers in the late 70s, early 80s, too. There was business to go around and, and the market was about to take off. Okay. So we went to the 80s and the market boomed and the brokerage community, you know, probably increased fourfold, you know, during, during that decade. So you might've gone from, you know, 500 brokers to 2000 brokers in the market. And today, you know, that's, we have a lot of brokers. I mean, there's no question. There's, there's a lot of brokers and uh, some of the firms have made it more institutional. I mean, it was very entrepreneurial and very much, you know, you could do whatever you wanted to. And, and when I started, you could be, you could do anything. You could sell a building, you could lease a building, you could do office, you could do retail, you could do industrial. I did it all. Today, when you go to a brokerage firm and you take a job, you're an office leasing broker on the landlord side or on the tenant side um, or an industrial broker, either way, or you're in investment sales and they don't let you crisscross very much back and forth. You really have to specialize. You pick your area and specialize and, and go with that. I mean, Oliver, we still do whatever. I mean, we still do sales. We do leasing. We do office. We do industrial. We do you know, whatever we need to do, we do tenant side, we do landlord side, we're very comfortable, you know, just kind of moving in that whole arena of there are a lot of clients out there and you might have a relationship and you figure out what they need. And then you try to satisfy that need and help them through whatever they, they want to go through. So brokerage has become more institutional. You have to provide more services. You have to figure out how to add value because no longer is it just that you happen to know what properties are available because CoStar's there. So we have a multiple listing, basically. You know, back in the day, you might be the only one that knew that a project was available, but no more. So it's, it's very different in, in, in that way. Yeah, your tenants may know more than you do about certain yeah, yeah. I mean, your client can go look on CoStar, okay, and decide, you know, that there's this building. But what they can't do is they can't, they don't know what the market is. They don't know what the deal next door was. They don't know what they should be thinking about, you know, going forward, you know, how they look at a, the different aspects of the lease, you know, or of a sale deal. So culturally, things have changed a lot, of course, too. We talked about women in the business, but just social mores and the way we do business uh, has changed so dramatically as well. Uh, used to be a locker room in the, in the brokerage. You know, when you were back at the office, there was a locker room. Anybody could say anything. I mean, again, I just ignored it. It didn't matter, you know, but I got to say there were, we had some women, you know, when I was a growing else, there were some women in the office that just couldn't deal with that, you know, like a guy would come back and it would be like, I couldn't even say what they, what they said, you know, it just was what it was. So you were either able to deal with that or you weren't able to deal with that. It was simple. Today, you could, it, it just couldn't be like that. You know, no one would allow the, world to be like that but it was like being in a fraternity yeah i mean that i would say that was probably the best thing so that was the good and the bad okay you had your own fraternity and they were all your friends okay and i would say that in the brokerage business that extends to the whole brokerage community for the most part we're all friends i mean when i sit down across the table from somebody there's a 95 percent chance i know that person and i've known them for a long time probably and you know so you're negotiating against them but 
on the backside, your friends. I don't think that happens in all cities. I know it didn't happen in Chicago when I was at Rubuck. I've heard, you know, people say that, you know, if you go to New York, it's not like that. If you go to LA, it's not like that. But here it's very colloquial and we are all friends, you know, for the most part. There are very few people that, you know, that aren't kind of part of that large fraternity of being a broker. And then you have the smaller fraternity of your own office, if you will. And so forget about all the nonsense that went on because there was lots of it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> The truth is you ended up with a lot of friends in the business um, out of the whole thing. Yeah, I, in my interviews with other uh, icons, that's the common theme is that this is a collegial environment. Uh, when I, yeah. particularly Ray Ritchie made the point that you go to Los Angeles and New York, and he said it's a chainsaw death match uh, there among the brokerage community, whereas here it's much more collegial. And he said he even writes when he loses a deal to some other developer or, or other brokerage firm, he'll write a note to them and congratulate them, even though he lost the deal and spent a lot of time and energy trying to compete for it, which I thought was a very interesting environment. He's a really nice guy, <laughs> okay? And, and he's, uh, you know, I mean, he has a lot of friends in this business. And, um, and I would say he kind of epitomizes, you know, how you want a developer to act and, and how you'd want to treat people. And he's right. I mean, you know, when we have a broker come in from another city and they want to, you know, do a deal here and we have to work with them, we know what that's going to be like. It's going to be different than what it is if you have a broker, a local broker with it. Um, Interesting. You know, they're, for the most part, much more aggressive and, and think that they can just get whatever they want. I, I think in, when we're here, you know, we know we have to work things out, you know, that you, and, you, and you know, you're going to be doing another deal with the, that broker someday too. I mean, you can't just kill the broker or the developer, you know, the owner. I mean, someday you're going to be sitting at, you know, the next deal with that same owner probably or, or broker on the other side. Let's shift gears now and talk about the real estate markets a little bit. And of course, we're at a unique, unique time in the marketplace. I also want to go back in time a little bit with, with historic downturns and get your perspective. And you've been through many of them, as I have. So um, maybe comparing where we are today with COVID-19 to some of the earlier distressing moments in the industry, maybe reflecting back uh, the first ones uh, that I recall were the early 80s, we had a little bit of a blip. And then, of course, 1990-91. And uh, then, of course, 2008 and 9-10 were probably the biggest drops. We could say that the, the dot-com bubble of the year 2000 also had some hits. But reflect back on those comparing to today a little bit, Sharon. What are your thoughts? So the so in the early eighties, so I was at Equitable, and one of my main jobs I didn't even understand foreclosure very much then. But my main job was I had all these properties that had FRE before it. They were all foreclosed properties. It didn't. It took me a while to figure out exactly what they were dumping on me. Okay, but I had I had to deal with all the workouts for all those properties while I was there, and that was really a recreated kind of situation. You had the economy, and then you had REITs that were really not doing well. That yeah, was the early late 70s. 70s, late 70s, early 80s. And so right. you had that. Um, but then you move, you go forward. And so you have the, the tech issues of, you know, late 80s, early 90s, and then the mortgage issues, you know, financial crisis of, you know, 2008, 2009. I think all of those were relatively short-lived for the most part. Their impact 
went longer than maybe the actual recession downturn. But the, you know, when I look at the pandemic today, the problem is it's, there's so much uncertainty and it's across the board. It's not just one industry. It's, you can't just say it's a tech problem or it's the finance issues. It's like everybody, everybody's in this. And there's so much uncertainty of what's going on. You know, nobody knows when it's going to end. Nobody knows what the right answer is. And nobody knows how to fix anything because it's, it's not a business related uh, pandemic. You know, it's a, it, you know, it's a virus and we don't control it. And, you know, so what's happened in the market is that it's left behind so much uncertainty. I mean, my, so on, on the tenant side, when I represent tenants, None of them know what they want. None of them know what they're going to need. They all know that they sent people home in this great undertaking of we're all going to go home. I mean, literally, we're, we're all working in the office one day, and the next day, we're all working at home. It was an instant, you know, kind of, we're going to take this experiment, and we're just going to send everybody home and see how it works out. Well, the truth is, it kind of did work out. Everybody has figured out how to work from home pretty well. You know, we all did it. I might have done it, you know, maybe more than a person that had to work nine to five, but we all did it in some way for a little bit. But it was never everybody working at home. It wasn't like you just took the office and relocated everybody to home and then hoped that they could all talk together like via, you know, Zoom or whatever way we were going to work. But I think for the most part, that experiment's pretty, been pretty successful. And the question is, how does that impact office leasing? Um, and it, you know, so I think the other downturns, nobody ever thought that there was going to be a real impact on office leasing. Everything would come back. Everything would go back to normal and we just move on. And that's what happened. You know, it might've taken two or three years. There was one year Phil and I talked and we said we could have taken the year off. We didn't even have to be there because no deals got done. It was like, I don't know, 2009 or something, but you know, Today, you look at it and go, everybody can still stay home. So, so I have one client who, is, who originally was taking, call it 30,000 square feet. Um, they came back to me right before the pin, right before we went home. I mean, days before I was showing space when no one was allowed in buildings. And they'd say, yeah, you can go in there, but you have to, you know, just have one person with you and whatever. So I did a tour right before that. And they said, maybe we'll take half the space. We, you know, we don't think we need the 30,000 anymore. We think 15 will work out and we'll do a deal. We work along on that deal. Deal's all done pretty much other than we haven't finished negotiating the lease. And they go, we don't feel like we can commit. We don't know how many people we're going to leave home. We don't know how we're going to work in the future. We're a law firm. Every court in the country is closed. We don't have any business right now. We can't get anything resolved and we don't know what's going to happen. And that uncertainty leads to great uncertainty to me in the, in the future of office leasing and what's going to happen. Um, another example, I have another client um, who is building a building and that building will deliver at the end of this year. And they've been for a long time thinking about change management and how that's all going to play and who's going to go with them and how they were shifting from a, a, an office environment where they had huge offices and everybody had their own individual office to an environment where it was more you know, it was, it was more open and there were huddle rooms and all these kinds of things that people were sort of trending toward, uh, you know, benching kind of situations, smaller 
uh, open office kind of situations with just a few offices, okay? So they decide that, you know, they're going to have to downsize also. They're going from, uh, say, 120 to 60,000 square feet, that kind of range. How are they going to do that? You know, what are the, how are they going to handle it? How are they going to, you know, send people home? How are they going to, you know, cut people? What are they going to do? Well, what's happened is the market did it for them. The pandemic did it all for them. 25 to 30% of their people, they're going to stay at home. They'll work at home forever. And that'll be that. The rest of the people, they'll ease back in. They don't have to cut anybody. And they're working on how to then open their offices in a way that will allow people to be socially distanced and yet still be at the office. So, you know, so once again, now, now we're in a situation where they just frankly don't need as much space as they had. They went from, you know, 120 to 60,000 square feet in one fell swoop and they never had to even think about it. All this change management that they thought they were going to have to go through pandemic did it for them. They, they never had to even have a conversation about it. So people well, stay fine. In recent years, you know, obviously the space use has changed considerably. And so the, the space per, per employee had contracted down to about, you know, one for what, 150 or so, 100 to 200 people, the 200 square yeah. feet. Call and, now, and now, of course, with the pandemic, we have this six-foot radius requirement. You know, at least that's what the CDC is dictating. So it's interesting. It's a counter-influence uh, of space use. So you have this compression of use of space to, to be efficient because of technology, et cetera. But then the other, pushing the other direction is this need for more space. And so elevator configurations, office layouts, uh, and we'll get into also the other thing I want to talk about is the, uh, the shared office space and, and the impact of the marketplace there as well. So talk about, you know, discussions with tenants with regard to the layout of their space, if you've gotten into that. You know. Yeah, well, we've had people who have actually had to reconfigure their space that they've already done. I think CBRE, where you were, I think that they were ready to move into their offices that were brand new and had to reconfigure them before they could move in. So they had some of that uh, going on. So, you know, I think everybody's thinking about how to accommodate social distancing. So people feel like you need to be in the office to be able to have interaction and you be able, you know, to have creative thinking and, you know, work as teams and all these things, but that you don't need to be at the office to do your everyday work. You know, you can be on the phone or on the computer or whatever and do that. So what I see a lot of my clients thinking about is people being in the office, I'll call it in shifts, you know, whatever, where the office, everybody doesn't have an individual office anymore. It's still, you know, people are going to come and go and there might be sharing of those office spaces. And the issue with that is how do you clean them, you know, and make sure that the next person coming in doesn't have any problem with the last person that was there. So they're all looking at conference spaces and huddle spaces and how do you make those spaces work? Because what they really see is a real need for that uh, working together space and not a real need for office space per se. So then how do you build a conference room? Like today, would you walk into a conference room and have a meeting with 15 people at a table in a room that's, I don't know, 200 square feet? Nobody would do that. Nobody in their right mind. No. So how do you set up a situation where, you know, you have spaces where you can have a meeting and yet everybody isn't on top of each other? 
and that's problematic. Or how do you have a team working together in an area? It might be three or four people and have them spaced out properly. So, so for instance, the client that's moving right now, they're going to have to go back and spread out some of their spaces more. So they're going to send people home, but they might, they're, they're still going to need the 60,000 feet because it's going to, they're going to spread out what they've got within that 60,000 square feet. So maybe on the positive side, maybe you're net zero. You know, maybe you, you haven't, haven't lost anything. You haven't gained anything, but you haven't lost anything in effect because you might send people home and still need the same amount of space to be able to do your social distancing. And then there's the firms that have just sent everybody home and are never going to open again. So, you know, that's just lost absorption, just lost, you know, lost occupancy. Well, but I don't think anybody office. thinks office that you're not going to need an office ever. I think they think you're not going to need an office for everything. If you're a law firm and you have like 200,000 square feet downtown and you're, you know, the sole occupant of a 10 story building and you're the, you know, the, the, the managing partner and your, your office is overlooking, you know, say the, the mall on, on Pennsylvania Avenue and you're on the 12th floor of the building. And you, unless you have a private elevator to get up there, you may have to wait a half hour for, for, for an elevator to go up to your office. Does it make sense for a, a managing partner have to be there every day? And so that, and that begs the question for anybody above, say, the first or second floor that can, can climb stairs to go to their space up to their office, as opposed to having to wait for an elevator. And of course, this is, you know, we're Washington, D.C. This is a 12-story capped environment. Imagine New York City or, or Los Angeles, where you have 60, 70-story buildings that you have office space in. So it's an interesting, you know, that's another dynamic that... I'm curious what your thoughts are there. Yeah, so it's it's not and it's not even just the elevator. So in the elevators where they're restricting people like two people at a time on an elevator, right. okay, right. to go up. And uh-huh. then you're even nervous maybe about being with the other person. You might only want to be the only one on the elevator, right? That's problematic. The bathrooms are problematic. Okay. Right. You gotta touch in most every office building today, you gotta touch a door to get in and out of the bathroom. You have a lot of touch points that you know, now everybody's trying to go back and recreate that. So you have entrances that would be more like you'd see in an airport or something like that, where there's no doors to walk in. You can kind of, you know, zigzag in, if you will, and then, you know, and then go in. You know, it's, it's every single, the parking garage, you know, you got to, uh, say you have valet parking, you got to let somebody else park your car, you know, for you instead of, you know, you parking it. Or you have to take public transportation to get to work. Well, nobody wants to get on the metro or the bus. I mean, the whole thing, I think, until we solve some of these issues, I think it's very up in the air, you know, what's going on. I mean, everybody's trying to fix the problems. It's going to cost more to own a building. I mean, for sure, it's going to cost more. There's just no way around it as far as operations and things like that. And that's going to get passed on theoretically in higher rent. But then the question is, what's the demand? Because if there's no demand, you can't push rent. So then you're just getting squeezed on the other side. And, and the, the other thing is the cost of building out space is so expensive. And it's getting it's increased dramatically over the last few years. So the cost of space for our tenants has gone up 30% since the beginning of the pandemic. And wow. that's just a huge number. I mean, it's, it's pricing people out of being able to really build out space. So we have more people looking at already built out space 
instead of having to worry about what that build out's going to be. And so, you know, you might eat into, you know, all your existing space, but you still have to worry about, you know, what are you going to do with that pipeline? I do think that at the very high end trophy space, there'll always be demand for that trophy space. It's the commodity space that gets the commodity A, commodity B plus those, those spaces get squeezed um, more than they've been squeezed before. You know, I mean, we still have tenants on buildings that we have that come and they're willing to pay top dollar to have a lobbying office or whatever it might be because they just want to be in a certain kind of space at a certain place. And, and they're still not, you know, they're not worried about it. But other than that, it's pretty tough. I'm, I'm of the school that the office market is forever changed. Um, I think we're going to figure it out. I don't think it goes away. I just think that there will always be people that work at home now. Um, so we've kind of moved from hoteling in the, in the accounting firms and some law firms and things like that to working at home. And so you can be in the office a couple of days, but you can open, say you're in the office two days a week and you're at home three days a week, something like that. You just don't have the same demand for space that comes out of that. And I think, I think that's a big difference between the 2008, 2009 downturn and the early 1990s. You know, we just didn't see space kind of going away. We had, we had the highest vacancy rate we've ever had in DC right now. We have virtually no net new absorption. I mean, it's in the like under 10,000 square feet. It's, it's kind of crazy. We've never seen a market like this where it's just at a standstill for the moment. Now, will that come out at the other end? I don't know. When is the other end? When are we going to get there? With that backdrop, we're doing deals. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I mean, there's still people that need space. We're still selling buildings. We still have things closing. We have, you know, conversion spaces from office to residential. We did an office conversion to a school. You know, I think we're going to have to look at other uses and think creatively to make deals happen. I, I, that's how I look at the market right now. That's uh, kind of where I was going to go next is just to kind of get understand how you're able to address this situation. What are you telling your clients? I mean, how are you asking them to think going forward and considering, you know, other options about using their space, et cetera? Or are they just basically figuring it out for themselves and you're reacting to what they're saying to you? Depends on the client. Um, so we're on contract with our Alexandria City Public Schools, okay? Before the pandemic, um, you know, they have, a, they have a real issue with increasing student population and how do you deal with it and no land to build schools on. So we were able to help them think through what the opportunities were, you know, look at their existing land, look at existing buildings. We put together a whole inventory of everything in Alexandria for them. And ultimately, what we ended up doing with them is we convinced them that it was reasonable to think about an office building conversion to make to turn it into an elementary school. And they ended up buying a building um, in Mark Center, which was a six-story office building, and they were able to convert that to an elementary school, and it opened about a year ago. So we, you know, we try to help our clients think outside the box. Like you can't just go out and buy a site to build a school because there's nothing there in Alexandria that they could really do that with. But the office building um, had been, uh, you know, was in a bad position. There wasn't a lot of demand um, in that market. And so they were able to get it at a reasonable price that enabled them to be able to deliver that as a school. Um, We're doing another deal where we have um, a series of older office buildings that need to get sold. We're selling them as a condo conversion project. The residential market 
probably as everybody that's on the phone knows, it's been pretty strong. And so there's opportunities. And I think that's going to play out during the pandemic too, is what are, you know, where are those opportunities? Because I think the, the demand is shifting a little bit on the residential side, but it's not going away. I mean, there's still demand, there's still growth um, in population. So we sold an office project as, as a condo conversion. And then we have other buildings that, you know, we've sold as value add or whatever they're going to be. But we try to help, help our clients position something that will enable them to attain the best price and the best value that they can get um, for their buildings. And so I think it's, it's our job to help them see all the options. You know, you can't just leave them hanging and say, let us know what you want to do. That's not the way we look at brokerage. You know, Phil and Martin and I look at brokerages. We are in it for the long run. We, we help them at the very beginning and we stick through them, with them through the very end of whatever project they're working on. And so it's our job to tell them, you know, at least how to look at things. I and mean, we can't make a decision for them, but we can open the opportunities for them. So I just want to stop for a minute and ask the audience if, if you have any questions for Sharon. We're going to take about the last five minutes or so of the discussion here in a few minutes uh, to take questions uh, for, for her. So I'm going to keep on with a few more here. So Sharon, tell us about some of the biggest wins, some of the biggest losses, and some of the biggest surprises you've seen in your career in the industry, just out of curiosity. Well, the big, big victories you've had over the years. Yeah, so let's take losses first. I, I look at losses as they usually end up being a win. So I don't worry about them, okay? Because most of the time when either I've lost a deal or whatever, it's been for the best. It's, it's, it's all worked out just fine, and it's been something that somebody shouldn't do. And we continued on and found something to replace it. So let's just put losses aside because I don't think losses really are losses, okay, in, in my world. Big wins, you know, winning Mount Vernon Place over, you know, over three big firms was a big win for us. Um, it demonstrated that people believed in us and we could get it done and we, you know, they didn't have to have a big firm. We didn't have to be a big firm to be successful. We did the yards. We did the commonics deal. We were the smallest firm they could have picked, we got hired behind CBRE. CBR was, um, you know, was on it first. We were on it second. We did three hundred thousand square foot build a suit on that site and you know in that project. So, you know, it's fun being a little guy and, and being able to win sometimes and, and, and win big. Um, we did a corporate executive board at Waterview. It was the biggest deal done ever in Washington at the point in time we did it. It was six hundred thousand square foot deal, and we did that at you know when we at the beginning of meeting Oliver. So we've kind of bookended with kind of, you know, having a deal like that and having a commodities deal and everything in between. So I look at it all. Every day is a win from, from my perspective, every single day, you know, as hard as it can be is a win, you know, and that's, that's the way surprises. There's surprises every day. You never know when something's going to happen. You know, even when you don't expect it in the middle of the commodities deal, Brookfield bought poor city. We were done with the deal and we had to redo the deal. So you, you just never know what's going to happen. I'd say, hang on for the ride. That's the way brokerage works. You know, every day is a surprise. Every day is something different. And, you know, you just keep going. It's all fun. How did you weather the lean times? So I learned this business early on. You spend to your worst year. You never, oh, you never think that your best year is where you should be. So I was lucky. 
that I didn't have to worry about it. I was lucky that, you know, we have two incomes in our house. I mean, I was lucky, you know, and, and I always looked forward and just thought there's going to be another deal and you just have to keep working through it. And, and that's frankly how I look at it today. I mean, we, we are very busy today working on deals still when I think other people are thinking the market's closed. So, you know, you just have to have, you have to just keep going and help your clients. I think if you have integrity, if you work hard, if you have a relationship, you will always be fine. So if you were uh, to look at your 25-year-old self today, what would you tell her? Don't be afraid. Just take risks. Take risks early. Do what you want. Go for it. Don't be timid about what you want to achieve. Take the risks when you are young and you can take the risks. You can afford to take the risks. Do what you want. Be happy. And, you know, if you're not happy, go find something else to do because it takes a lot of passion to build a career. And, you know, you need to really love it. That's great. So if you could post a billboard for millions to see on the Capitol Beltway, what would it say? Dream big. Never, never underestimate what you can achieve. You know, everybody uh, can, can make whatever they want of themselves. And so, you know, go for the stars. You, you, you know, you might just get there. That's great. So I'm going to uh, now let Rob Valero join us. And uh, Rob is hearing, listening, and maybe ask a few questions that uh, may have come in from the audience. Sure. Great. Uh, one question that came in was, person is interested in how Sharon and Phil knew starting a partnership was the right decision. What advice would you give to someone considering, you know, sort of going from a bigger firm and branching out and starting a small firm with a partner? Okay, so the answer is that we had both had bad partnerships before. We understood what we wanted out of a partnership and what we didn't want out of a partnership. I would say, know your partner very well. Know what you're walking into. Know that that person's going to be able to take the good and the bad, ups and downs with you. You know, don't just do it for the money and don't just do it for the, you know, because you want to get out of something. Do it because you see a long-term uh, relationship there. It doesn't work um, if you don't do it that way. One other question I have, for, particularly for our students, is you mentioned earlier the uh, early in the conversation about mentorship you know, how do you pick your mentor how do you find a, a mentor and and how does that relationship unfold and and you as being a mentor how what are you looking for you have a, obviously have a lot to offer but for a student what should they be doing to nurture that relationship so when I talk to students, um, I think networking is the most important thing a student can do. You know, get out and meet people, know people. You know, on the real estate side, you, you know, you can go to, to NAOP, you can go to ULI as a student. There's a lot of places where you can meet people. And I'd say just be interested in what people are doing. You know, learn about the business because you want to know as much as possible before you make a decision what direction you want to go. But I think the people, senior people are generally accessible and they're interested in helping people and you know they shouldn't be afraid to walk up to somebody and and ask them you know what they do in the business what they think about the business 
you know, what do they, what does a student need to do to get into the business? You know, I think you just need to put yourself out there. You can't sit in your dorm room or, or stay at school and get a mentor. It's not going to work. You have to be outside of that bubble. Other questions from our, uh, from those in the audience? Doesn't look like it. Well, I'm going to then say thank you very much, Sharon, for participating. Thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate it. I thought it came off uh, very well. So I, once again, uh, thank the audience for joining us today. And thank you for uh, your participation. And to my podcast audience, uh, uh, we will uh, have a little postscript discussion uh, uh, hereafter. And thank you for joining me today. Have a great day. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. We just finished this discussion with Sharon Oliver, meaning Oliver, my interview with her at GW on a live basis. And uh, I wanted to uh, reintroduce Tom Amos, who's a ULI young leader and my, been my sidekick for the last several episodes of Icons. And we're going to talk about the interview and some of his observations and some questions that he might have of me of the conversation. So take it away, Tom. Great. Well, thanks, John. You know, I think in light of everything that's been going on here recently, I think it's great that we've got Sharon and we've got kind of a, a more diverse group of guests upcoming for listeners. I'm really excited about that. And what I wanted to talk about today was just women in real estate. And Sharon talks talks a good bit about that and her experience and, and kind of how things have transitioned over the years. Sharon she talks about, you know, her grandfather and father and uncle talking about deals as, as she was growing up and, you know, them kind of saying, going out, go outside and play while we talk about this deal. And then later her having kind of an interest and her going to Goucher and starting to see women going into a more leadership role from people that she graduated with. Although even at that time, she says that that's not necessarily the norm. And then transitioning into her career. And, and I think the really interesting thing that she had brought up was her time at Equitable at the beginning of her career, when she said that she had an interest in a training program. And, and they had mentioned that they already had one woman in the program. And, and that, was, that was kind of enough. And I imagine that, that that could be pretty frustrating to hear. And I think that, that we've, we've come a long way from that. But when, when she brought up that, that statistic, it reminded me of uh, Malcolm Gladwell has a great podcast, uh, Revisionist History, where he covers in one of his episodes, Elizabeth Thomas, who is an artist in the 19th century. And she does, she does an art piece called Roll Call. And so why this piece is famous is 19th century, she uh, is nominated to be um, inducted into the Royal Academy, which is like the highest level of an artist could reach, right? This is kind of the, the Emmys or the Oscars for, for, for the artist. She ends up being two votes away from being elected. And at the end of that, you know, a lot of people said, well, this is such a great sign of progress. We have a woman that's nominated and this is early in her artistic career. Surely she'll get it later. That never came fruition. She, uh, she ends up, although she does plenty of other beautiful artwork after this piece, um, she's never nominated in the Academy. And it's actually 
not until 1936, a half a century later, that another woman is elected into the Royal Academy. And, and why I bring up that example, I think it's interesting and it's applicable for our listeners and for everybody to be thinking about in these times that this notion of moral licensing and that, you know, just because, you know, there's, I guess there's a tendency for people to, if, if there's a good deed to give permission to do something else that, you know, kind of abandoning those virtuous thoughts. So, you know, the notion of, of hiring a woman or, or having a woman on your executive board, I, I think that there should be we should strive to continue to look at people on an individual basis. And that's not the end of the story right there. Another interesting statistic that, that Malcolm Gladwell covers in that podcast is that there are a number of, of major countries that have had one female leader and not multiple, but, but one. And then there's kind of this tendency for there to be some type of regression after after uh, a woman finds herself in a leadership role. Now, some of that might just be because, you know, these are later and more recent women that have, have been nominated. And I think that we'll, we'll, we'll see more of that. But I, I thought that that was interesting. I mean, there were 14 countries they listed, some including, you know, Brazil, Germany, Croatia, Panama, Turkey, France, Poland, Ecuador, Canada, Australia, all these countries, you know, they nominated a woman. She, she found herself in a leadership role, but there hasn't been a second one since then. I guess the next thing I looked at here, John, was, you know, kind of how how are, Sharon talks a lot about kind of the real estate industry being a male-driven industry, uh, uh, still predominantly run by men, and, and there being a lot of men in, in executive roles and so forth in, in the industry. And I looked at how past companies that you've had on your podcasts, how they fared through this. And so I looked at executive level and higher positions within the organizations that you've interviewed and found that about 16% of, of the upper management within those organizations were women. Comparatively, I, I really wanted to look at some statistics on other industries and kind of compare that. And unfortunately, I didn't come across anything that really broke it down by industry, but the national average is about 25%. So we could see that kind of through the 15, 20 different companies that you've interviewed at 16% versus 25%. So I thought that was interesting. And, and that kind of is in line with what Sharon had covered, it being a little bit lower than the national average. And then, you know, another interesting statistic I came across was uh, that Washington, D.C., is actually one of the highest percentage of women-owned businesses relative to men across the country at 45%. And a lot of uh, the research that I did really points to the fact that, you know, there's there's been tremendous growth in, in women-owned businesses and it, it, it's outpaced the overall growth. Here from 1997 to 2014, women-owned businesses uh, are about one and a half times the rate of, of of the other averages. So, you know, I, I think that it's great to hear with Sharon's podcast about the progress that, that we've made probably since the onset of her, her uh, career where, you know, somebody was telling her that they had enough people that were going through training to where we're at today. I think that there's still a lot of room and, and I guess what is, what is your take 
on how things have uh, have gone throughout your career and and where maybe do you see that we can make some uh, improvements? Thanks, Tom, for that uh, high level overview of your perspective of the situation with uh, women in in our business. The real estate industry is pretty diverse, and uh, there are lots of different options, many more options today to enter the field than there were when I began the business. Categorically, they're similar, but they're just more ways of getting into the business. The technology growth and various aspects have introduced opportunities for everybody, not men, men and women and minorities to get involved in our industry. And so I think there's an expansion of opportunity, which is going to open the doors for a lot more people of all types to join us. So I think there's, and then now we're, we have much more cognizance of making sure that people are of all, you know, races and, and sexes and persuasions are represented well in the corporate environment today. And that, and, and that goes down even to the entrepreneurial environment and would argue that individuals are all differently made. I mean, we all come from a different perspective, and that's one of the reasons why I go to origin stories on my podcast with with each of my guests, because everyone's orientation to the business is different. Some people just kind of stumble into it, as we've seen many times. Other people, like Sharon, for instance, had a grandfather who started one of the early brokerage firms here in Washington, one of the the longest-running firms from the 1950s, actually, that's when H.G. Smithy, or maybe even earlier than that, I didn't look at their history, but so her grandfather was a huge influence on her. And I don't think it was specific. He wasn't grooming her to be a broker because when, uh, even in his company, there were very few women at that time, probably one out of a hundred. So the ratio probably dropped from one out of a hundred to maybe one out of 20 or 30 by the time that she and I started in the business in the late 70s, early 80s. I was at CBRE in the early 80s, and there were two female brokers out of 30 of us in, in, in my office at the time. Uh, both were in, in the retail sector, which is pretty common where more, more women in brokerage are in retail than they are in probably other, any other of our sectors, uh, other than maybe in apartments and leasing. But... Uh, so the trends I've seen over the years that in the marketing side of the business, there are more women than there are in development, construction, uh, maybe not so as much, you know, in the analytical side, there's more women now involved and now even more in the investment side too. So people uh, leading investment decision-making, uh, there's many, many firms that are uh, led by women in the pension advisory business, less so in the development side of the business but more on uh, investments and in uh, property management and, and uh, marketing. So that's, that's what I've seen, you know, recently. And over the years, it's, uh, it, the ratios have increased. That's good. Any other, any other observations? That's all I got. That's all I got this week. Okay, Tom, thank you very much for your perspective and uh, thank you listeners. And uh, we will uh, be interviewing uh, some upcoming guests to talk about. We'll be talking with, uh, later in August, will be Herb Miller of Western Development Company. 
who is one of the premier developers in the Washington, D.C. area over the last 40 years. It should be quite an entertaining discussion. And then uh, two other gentlemen are going to join me in a three-way conversation. John Green of Black Star Realty Advisors and uh, Joe Carroll of Evergreen uh, Development Company here in the city in Washington are going to give us uh, a little perspective of their lives growing up uh, as uh, as black uh, men and then real estate professionals. So it could be a very interesting, uh, be very interesting conversations. So thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time.